Welcome. Welcome, everyone, back to Love's Labour's Watched, your favourite women-focused pop culture podcast. I am going to get so good at this. It's going to be uh, amazing. Um, but yeah, welcome back, everyone. How are you doing? How are you doing, Francesca? Yeah, I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Mm. All right, actually. Um, I've, um, you know, planted some grass seed in my garden and I'm now become a proud mother to a grass seeded garden. It's currently still a pile of mud, <laughs> but I'm still a proud mother. Hopefully some new baby grass seedlings. Um, nobody, none of you have ever been to my house, nor will you ever go to my house, unfortunately for you guys. Um, unless you're my boyfriend who is listening. Hi, Connor. Um, and uh, yeah, I have a horrible pile of mud in my back garden and lockdown has given me a real opportunity um, to really tackle my back garden. Uh, we've dug it out, gotten rid of the weeds, put down some grass. I've got a whole hose rigged up to my taps and everything so I can water it all the time. You know, you have to water grass, especially baby grass, constantly. It has to be moist constantly. So I'm out there three times a day watering. Um, luckily for me, the weather has turned really nice recently. So I'm really hoping that the combination of water and sun will get me some grass I can sit on by myself because there's obviously nobody, no one to hang out with. But yeah, um, that was quite long winded. I didn't expect that to go as far as it did. But um, there we go. This is now a gardening podcast. So yeah, the listeners just have to deal with that. (laughs) Yes, yes. I will be offering weekly tips on, sorry, fortnightly tips on gardening. (laughs) Well, I guess... Once your garden gets nice, that'll be a nice spot for reading, which I think leads us into a good seek slash segue to um, our topic this week, our main topic. So we have another exciting author interview for you. Um, This week, we were delighted to speak to the journalist and memoirist Gavandra Hodge about her book, The Consequences of Love, which um, is just an incredibly poignant and powerful memoir about Gavandra's childhood and her present day and how the two intersect um, and her an exploration really of um, Gavandra's past. I think, um, you know, she sort of summed it up so well in the interview that we're not going to do a synopsis here because we're going to let her kind of do the talking. But it was a really wonderful read. We both loved it. And we were so excited to speak to her, weren't we? Yes, absolutely. We were um, slightly nervous, I will say, because, you know, we're not talking to somebody who wrote uh, a story from their, you know, a fictional story. We're talking about somebody writing about their own life. Um, but uh, we had such a great time chatting to Gavandra. And I think it's so insightful and so interesting. So we, yeah, hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Yeah. Um, so well, we should just get straight into it, I think. Let's go. First of all, for, for those listeners who haven't yet read the book, we wondered if you could just give a little synopsis um, and also um, tell the listeners and us um, what moved you to begin writing this very moving and heartfelt memoir. Um, sure. Well, it's quite hard to do a short synopsis, so I'll do yeah. a sort of medium length synopsis. Mm. And I okay. think um, <laughs> I think the sort of the reason that it's hard to do a synopsis was the reason why it was hard to write it because mm. my mm. life was very complicated and had lots of different elements in it. So um, the book is essentially about. Um, things that happened to me in my childhood and the influence of those things into my adulthood um, and how I learned to deal with some of the tragedies and the difficulties that I had experienced as a young person. So Mm. when I was a very little girl, my father was a heroin addict and my mother was an alcoholic and our flat in Chelsea was quite chaotic um, insofar as they would both often be high and I would have to make my own breakfast and so you know Mm. I think the children of addicts learn to be adults sooner than they need to Mm. Um, and then moving on from that my father sold heroin to sort of the denizens of Chelsea aristocrats who would turn up in our flat at 11 o'clock at night to buy heroin from him and take it in our living room and I became quite um, quite 
I was curious and I was also scared that they would burn the flat down, basically. So I'd go and sit with them and wait till they'd all passed out, which would be quite late. And I'd sort of step among them, blow out candles and put out cigarettes um, and trying to sort of keep everyone safe. Because by this point, I had a little baby sister, Candy. Um, When I was about nine, my parents got clean following various police raids and so on. And then we had about four to five years of being a normal family, as as far as that's possible. Mm. And then my sister, Candy, died in a hotel room in Tunisia of a airborne virus, which was very rare. And my father and I were in the room with her. And obviously this was an intense and terrifying and traumatizing moment Mm. that sort of spun us all off in different directions with grief. Um, My father started taking drugs again. My mother became a born-again Christian. Um, I sort of uh, wanted to hang out with my dad because it seemed like the funnest or the easiest response to what we'd seen insofar as it was about forgetting about what we'd seen. Uh, So I did. um, And then my father started seeking out young girls, including my friends, as a sort of part of his... Uh, I don't know how to really describe it, but kind of part of trying to find his lost little girl, but also part of his own behaviour. So this is all very difficult. And when I got to about 18, um, I well, actually earlier, when I was about 16, it all kind of reached ahead. My father moved out of the flat uh, with a, a younger woman and... I decided to change my life and to focus more on my studies. And that sort of set me on a road to building a life for myself, which was very different to the one that I'd grown up in. And I went so far down this route um, that by the time I got to about 30 Two, um, I had a husband, a house, a job, was pregnant, had a baby, had another baby. And it was like I was trying to pretend that these things had never happened to me. And then one day I looked at my two daughters, realised that they were a similar age gap between my self and my sister. And I realised that I had absolutely no memories of Candy at all, even though she was nine when she died and I was 14 and we'd shared a bedroom. Mm. And I just felt sort of devastated by this loss because it felt like a double loss. It felt like I'd lost her once when she died. And again, through my negligence almost, it's like I'd, I, I'd sort of chosen to forget her. And, and then that I thought that was a, a very sad thing. And that was the impetus that made me try to find her in my memories to mm. see if I had really lost her, but also to try and kind of unpick my childhood and make sense of it and make sense of who I was um, as an adult and how that intersected with who I was as a child. And, and and there had been this big gap between who I was and who I became. And I realised that that was an unhealthy place to be. So the book is about that process. Mm. Um, and the impetus for it was really looking at my children, but also just there were sort of various nudges along the way that made me think, I have to write this. I'd, I'd always written, but I'd never written this mm. story. I think I was scared of it. Yeah. Um, so yes, so that was a medium-sized synopsis. Yeah. Yeah. Say. <laughs> yeah. very, very, I think a very good size for, for what it is. Um, and equally, um, we know that you, yes. you're, a, you're a journalist and you know your writing background kind of comes from there. Mm. Um, can you give us a few insights kind of into your uh, your career yes. up until up until now and what kind of stuff you generally work on when you're not writing memoirs? Sure. Um, I've only written one memoir and I don't yeah. think I'm really going to write another one. So I think it's just <laughs> writing a memoir. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, when I left university, I started working at the Daily Mail as work experience. Um, and it was the day after Princess Diana had died. So wow. it was quite a weird time to be working at the Daily Mail. And that also dates it. Uh, so it's a long time ago. Um, and so I worked as a journalist um, in offices as a feature writer and as an editor for about 20, more than 20 years, um, variously at the Daily Mail, the Independent on Sunday, um, the Evening Standard, where I was deputy editor of ES magazine, and finally Tatler, mm. where I was deputy editor, and then also covered as editor when the editor went on maternity leave. So I was editor of Tatler for a year. Um, and then I decided to go freelance uh, because I'd had enough of working in offices yeah. and I wanted to concentrate on writing this book. Um, 
And so since then, I've been a freelance journalist and I tend to do mostly sort of celebrity interviews for places like The Times and The Telegraph. Uh, So that's what I do for my day job. But I'm also doing a master's degree at the moment as well, because I thought I wasn't doing enough and I needed to throw in something else. (laughs) So I'm doing a part time master's degree (laughs) in cultural, intellectual and visual history at the Warburg Institute. Yeah. Wow. That's what I do. Really interesting. Much of the writing in the book is rich and vivid in its detail um, and is also you recalling events from your past, as you mentioned earlier, and remembering what happened and also um, not dramatising it, but bringing it to life for the reader and for yourself as you're recalling what happened. What was that process like? Um, It was... I've always written, um, but I had sort of shied away from writing about my childhood because... I found it difficult um, and I didn't want to be associated with it. And this is part of what I was talking about, about how the person I became felt like it was very different to the person I was. Um, but then what I decided that writing was almost like a, an aid to memory, because as I started to write, I found my brain sort of filled with memories. It was like sort of opening a treasure chest and discovering the lost things inside it. Um, and I've always had a good memory, but writing as a process seemed to bring things out and so I really started writing because I thought I might be able to write myself back to Candy like if I wrote she would be there Mm. um and that wasn't necessarily the case I found myself writing about things and remembering so much but not remembering her um and the writing I'd always written because I find it very satisfying to put things in order as a child of a chaotic upbringing Order is super important to me, which is sort of, I think, why I studied classics, because I really like Latin. It seems very ordered. Um, And I've always written to put things in order um, and to make them neat. Um, But when I tried to write about my childhood, I found often, especially in the earlier stages, that that wasn't what was happening. It still felt really messy and confusing, and I couldn't impose order on it. And it would sort of, I, I found it very sometimes very emotional and overpowering to write about these things. And I think partly that's because it was emotionally overpowering. This was the first time I'd really examined some of these experiences and feelings in my life. Um, And also because I was doing it and I'd never had any therapy, which was sort of a mistake to sort of plunge yourself into thinking about difficult things without any help or any framework. So after about six months of doing it and sort of making myself feel a little bit mad in the process, I uh, took myself to a therapist and that really helped. And then once I'd gone through the process with her of sort of putting a framework and an order on the things that had happened to me, um, then I found the writing process pleasurable and possible Mm. um so that's sort of how it worked but at the same time I was also very busy because I was I wrote this book a lot of this book while I was still working full-time in fact when I was editing the magazine so I had a very busy and quite difficult job and also with two small children and a husband and you know all the attendant things there so um writing was sometimes a retreat and a kind of a lovely retreat and getting away from it all but sometimes it felt really hard um, so it was both things, but it got easier as I went along, and I enjoyed it more as I went along. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot. I think a lot of writers feel that you sort of realise you're in the middle of everything, you know, without noticing. Mm. Um, uh, equally, um, so to kind of stick on writing, um, there are some kind of decisions made. Um, you know, you made mm. in the book. You know, with you structure it kind of according to two timelines: one beginning in 1989 with your sister's death, and the second with in 2014 with you yes. beginning the writing of or beginning the process of sort of finding candy mm. in your writing. So, kind of what kind of made you decide that? And equally, yes. um, you know, there's a lot about as well memory and pasts and. You know, how did you think about what you wanted to include yes. and what you knew you couldn't include in the book itself? Um, I the, the way I started writing the book was just writing down all my memories. And I didn't really have a, a thought to structure at that point. I just felt like I needed to get it all out. And, and it, what it sort of how it began to form itself once it found a format was as a series of short stories almost um so the interconnecting elements the bits of today where I try and seek candy out um are 
put in there because the problem with memoir for the reader is that it's not in a narrative format. You know, life doesn't follow a narrative arc. So the the, the kind of the the search and discovery element of it was me trying to find my sister. So I kind of put that bit in. But also mm. because when I spoke to an editor about, my lovely editor, about the book, she she said when she just read it without the modern stuff in, you need to show the reader who you are today mm. and you need to show the reader that you have reached a positive point in your life almost, you know, that you're, and that's what was lacking. And and that was her. And so I then set about trying to include who I am today in the story of who I was then. And and, and then it becomes this sort of story of a person and how they change and develop, but sort of, and integrate their past into their present. But then the way that it starts, so it starts unchronologically, obviously with Candy's death, which isn't the beginning, but it felt like the kind of the moment when everything in my life changed, the pivot around which everything else sort of hinged, hung. Um, And so that's why it felt like a good place to start. But also I just really got into the line of duty and I just thought I love the line of duty and I think Jed Mercurio is really clever because he starts he always starts the series off with like the most intense thing yeah and I know this sounds kind of uh trite when you're talking about something so personal and so sad but you have to when you're writing memoir divide yourself into two halves I think you you are the person who lived it and who's living it while they're writing it but you're also a writer who's writing something like a practitioner so I think those two elements have to come into play Uh, so that's why so Candy is at the start because she's the most important part of the story and it's for Candy and it's about Candy but also I think it really um, immerses the reader immediately into what's important about this story the book is just incredibly candid and honest about um, your experiences, both your experiences um, when you were younger and your experiences now. Um, and you're, you're very candid about your struggles as an adult um, to come to terms with your sister's death and its impact on you and your family. Um, was it important to you to share your ongoing struggles with bereavement and how it is a process that never really has an end and, and is just maybe more of a coming to terms with the situation? Um, I think so, yes, Um, because it wasn't necessarily, I find it, I'm quite a private person, I find it quite weird to write about myself, and especially as my editor was like, you've got to say how brilliant you are, and I was like, that's really not something I'm comfortable Mm. with, uh, because I don't necessarily feel like that person, Um, but I, I kind of felt that, yes, if this would offer a kind of a positive narrative to other people, then then it made sense to me to include myself in that way um, because I personally had found great um, sort of help in other stories of this sort. You know, I read lots of books about people's struggles with grief and, and I found them really helpful. And they kind of, not necessarily those books which are like, oh, the seven stages of grief or kind of those sorts of books which are more manuals, but mm. personal stories I found really helpful um in in navigating my own grief and kind of working out how I felt it's like other people put into words feelings that I had so I thought if I could try and offer the same uh thing to other people then that would be a really positive benefit as well as the sort of you know straightforward writing of it and and writing about me uh, which was sometimes you know tricksy to write about yourself that candidly I I think when you write um, you have to really forget that anyone's ever going to read it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to be like, okay, I'm just going to write it. I'm going to write what's true. I'm going to write how I feel. And I'm going to not be embarrassed or ashamed or blush. You know, even though these are things that I probably find difficult to tell people I love, mm. but I'm just going to put it all in there and I'm going to forget that anyone's ever going to read it. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I did <laughs> sometimes. Not yeah. always. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, the, you know, the, the seriousness and the power that it kind of shows to other people has to kind of come from a place of really being open. Um, and, and equally, I think one thing that really, um, really struck me whilst reading was how open you are about the sort of party scene that you were part of kind of through your father, you know, drugs, mm. money, alcohol, young women, um, yeah. things like that. And I think it's quite 
I mean, everybody knows the 70s and 80s and 90s were sort of like that. But equally, mm. you know, it is a you know a part of your past you were very open about. Um, you know, how was how was it being open about that? And did you kind of want to be, or did you end up being? If that makes sense. No, I mean, I wanted to be. I lived it. That's what it was like. And I, I, I suppose it's it's interesting because we feel like that was a long time ago, but it doesn't feel like a long time ago to me, you know, that those sort of sexual dynamics were considered normal, uh, was my childhood and my young adulthood. And it's only now that we look back on that and we think, quirky, that was weird, unacceptable. But, you know, when I was 15, 16, 17, that's just how... A lot of people, particularly in the parts of London and in the social groups that I was hanging out in, behaved. And those sorts of relationships were glamorized in the press. Um, So I wasn't going to hide that that was a part of my life. But I also wanted to make sure that people understood that it's not okay and that Mm. even though we were dressing up like grown-ups we weren't grown-ups and the adults were not behaving like adults and that the responsibility in those sexual dynamics was upon the adults in those situations and they weren't behaving responsibly yeah um so I wanted to show that they were dangerous those times as well as you know when we were in them we told ourselves it was glamorous and fun even though inside we were feeling pretty freaked out I think most of the time yeah absolutely Mm. yeah and and to return to the topic of of grief um you you know in in the book how after you start telling people the full story of what happened with Candy um friends and co-workers and family members respond with personal stories of their own and often these are stories that neither of you have shared before um Do you think there are ways in which, as a society, we could improve our relationship with talking about death and grief and illness and other issues that sometimes become kind of taboo in in conversation, even with people we're very close to? Definitely. And I think it was part of the issue that I had, especially when I was a young woman. So after my sister died, and and this is in the book, I went back to my secondary school and I went back a day late (laughs) because it had been agreed that they would make an announcement in assembly that Candy had died. And so I, you know, sat at home feeling anxious and, uh, you know, just not knowing what I would do the next day what they would want me to say and it was so peculiar because no one talked to me about candy at all not a teacher not a friend no one which was for me a lesson it was like okay all right people don't want me to talk about candy so I won't talk about candy Mm. um and likewise my mother had the same experience my mother uh, when we came back from Tunisia would walk down the king's road see a friend and the friend would see her and cross the road so that they wouldn't have to talk to her because they there's this huge fear and i think sometimes people are afraid that they're going to say the wrong thing or do the wrong thing with people who are in grief but all you need to do is give someone a hug and say i love you and i'm thinking of you it's not mm, it's yeah. not difficult but i think there is a taboo around it and it's and that has been chipped away at and, and i think we're in a much better place now and there's lots of amazing work that's been done by therapists and charities about how schools respond to bereaved children Um, and so we are getting to a much better place with it and conversation is so important and feeling like you are allowed to talk about it and getting the words out really really help people with grief because then they don't feel alone and I think the kind of the solitude of grief can be really sad and one of the hardest Mm. things so if you feel like other people are holding you and helping you and love you and are there for you at the end of the phone if you really need them Mm. then I think that makes it it allows you to grieve and it allows you to feel those emotions and they need to pass through us because Mm. if they don't then we become then they become suppressed in the way that my grief for candy was suppressed and that means Mm. that you don't remember so well or at all yeah absolutely and I think um equally in the book there's a a, a section of it where you describe kind of going to various uh, mental and physical health Mm. professionals as you know a way to see if you can 
access your grief and access your memories of candy and as well as just you know work out what works for you and yeah um, I think there was a you know an acupuncturist and an, a mental yes. health professional things like that um how was it kind of navigating that process for you at the time and then equally writing about it as well because mental health subjects can be quite difficult I feel to sort of portray in some yes. ways yes and I think also sometimes we feel like we've read about therapy quite a lot of times so you know how but uh it was the process was really interesting and it felt you know very few of those processes felt like light bulb moments mm. a couple did I have to say um but it felt like kind of incremental steps and each one kind of led to the other and each one was helpful and also you feel like you're doing something and I think that's a really important thing like if you feel like there's a problem or an issue in your life to feel like you're just doing something even if it doesn't work the act of doing something is helpful to you mentally so you know going to have the woman who sort of decided that my um trauma was stored in my right hamstring yeah. uh might have been quite odd and actually incredibly painful but I'm like <laughs> oh maybe you know maybe she got something out there who knows and uh, and the the moment where I go to Laura the acupuncturist um which was one of the most bonkers experiences of my life and she said that she felt the presence of a young child in the room and she didn't know about my sister um that was kind of amazing and it allowed me to think about my sister and to imagine her being with me whether she was or not I don't know um so all those all those things I did were helpful and mm -hmm. just the act of deciding to do them marked a moment of progress for me mm. um and then you know in writing about them I just sort of described the the most interesting moments rather than the kind of you know I did many 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 hours of therapy and not all of them uh were so interesting so yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just wrote about the, the interesting stuff yeah <laughs> and the memoir obviously by its very nature is is very personal um and uh you know the the title and the 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 cover with the the photograph of you and Candy and um, and just all the details about your life and and your um, journey. What was it like being that sort of open? I mean, you talked a bit about it earlier, but um, when it comes to even situations like this, when you're talking about your life in in this sort of way that it's probably I imagine a little bit surreal at times. Um, how how has that been for you, especially in the past two weeks since the book came out? Yeah. I mean, what in the past few weeks, we've also been in the most surreal moment that any of us can remember in lockdown. And, and you know, I, um, I imagined all sorts of things about how it would be to publish this book and how it would feel and, and how exposing it would feel and how comfortable I would feel with that. What I never imagined was that I would be publishing my book in the middle of a global pandemic, which meant that we all had to stay in our homes. Mm. Um, so I think that has really impacted on my experience of it um you know I I feel quite at one removed from the publishing process sometimes I can wake up in the morning make my kids breakfast you know poodle along with my day and it feels like I haven't actually published a book mm. so um I think in some ways that has been like a bubble and almost a protective bubble yeah. um, because it feels like it's at one remove. So I don't feel that exposed by it. But what I have had, and what, which has been incredibly lovely, um, I've had a lot of messages, mostly on kind of Instagram messenger from mm. people, some of whom I have known in the past or know now, and some of whom I don't know at all, who are sending me really beautiful messages in which they detail their own experiences of grief and, and how they might have suppressed that grief um, and how reading my book has kind of resonated with them or jolted them into thinking differently about themselves. And that's really wonderful because, you know, that's a positive impact you're having on people. Mm. Um, and also, but but the kind of the distant element of it means that I have time to read those messages and to think about my response and, mm. and to like sort of let them sink in. And, you know, I'm really looking forward to the day when I can stand in a room and, you know, meet people who've read it and sign books and stuff. That's going to be really interesting as well mm. and talk to people. Um, but, you know, it, it's also quite challenging if, if five people come up to you and tell you the, the really sad thing that has happened to them for you to engage with that in with the sort of in kind of consciousness that you need to 
Mm, uh, yeah. So, but to do it in this way has allowed me to to read each of these messages and and respond to each of them properly. I think. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. So yeah. it's been interesting. Uh, and it has felt a bit exposing, but I think it would have felt a lot more yeah. exposing had we not been in this situation. But also, you know, I chose to do this, so yeah. it's, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. And mm. is that so? Is that one of kind of the messages, or the not even the lesson? Um, you know, more sort of takeaways that you'd want people to have from reading your memoir. You know, that their you know their own grief um, is something they can handle as you did, or is there kind of something else you'd want them to know as well? Um, I think that. For me, one of the things is is not uh, when I was in my sort of thirties, early forties. I felt like there was a massive gap between who I was portraying to the world and who I really was. And I think in the middle of that gap is where you might sort of lose your sense of self mm. quite badly. And I sometimes did. And 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 it wasn't just about grief. It was about, well, it was mostly about grief. But you know, kind of. The, the, the things that happened to me, you know, being the child of addicts is a really tough thing. Mm. Um, being the child of a man like my father is a tough and wonder, you know, he was wonderful in many ways, but it's also a very tough thing. Um, so the experiences that I had um, were difficult, but I needed to engage with them and make them part of my identity in order to actually be a full, a whole person rather than a sort of just a, someone that I was presenting to a lot so I think it's that it's sort of and and part of that is doing a proper grief process is to, to be able to integrate who you were with who you are but I think the other message and particularly that's pertinent for now is the fact that people will be grieving at the moment people will have lost people but it will be hard to grieve because you can't properly have funerals and you can't mm. hug people and you you can't engage with your kind of loved ones and talk about the person who's gone in a way that you might want to and might feel cathartic but I suppose what I learned was that it doesn't matter kind of when you grieve you can if you can't handle it now if it's too much you can wait until you're ready and wait until it's possible for you and that doesn't diminish or make less sort of powerful the grieving process so you yeah. know there's always the chance to unlock your grief and if it's not possible for you to grieve right now if you just need to put one foot in front of the other then that's okay as well yeah absolutely mm. yeah and as you say it is such a strange time at the moment and um everyone is trying to come to terms with that and and many people are dealing as you say with very difficult situations and emotions um I wonder if you have any advice or insight on how to potentially channel that emotion into writing um, anyone who might be interested in exploring either how they're feeling at the moment or looking back at events in their past um, and potentially writing a memoir as well or even just doing it for their own their own personal um, you know health and, and well-being I wonder if yeah you'd be able to speak anything on that. Um, well I mean as I say I always wrote and um, writing for me was a great kind of saviour I, I always found it really important to be able to kind of yeah. order my thoughts mm. um and writing about my sister was a really powerful process for me but I mean and I know this is really boring but the only advice is is just to do it just to you know just to make some time to do it really and yeah. that's the only way you can do it but you know don't be scared of it just and it doesn't matter if it's just sort of a series of random sentences just sit down and write and then you'll find what you want to say gradually. It took me five years. Yeah. So <laughs> it's not quick. Well, it wasn't for me anyway. I think other people write memoirs much faster than I do. Mm. Um, but yeah, it took me a long time to yeah. do it. But that doesn't matter. You just have to keep doing it. You've only, you're only not writing because you've chosen not to write. Yeah, I like that. Mm. Oh, brilliant. I think um, that, that's the end of the uh, questions that we've got for you. Um, oh. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for, for talking to oh, us. I think that the mem yeah, your memoir was so powerful. And I think being able to talk to, I mean, we love talking to the people who write the books that we talk about on the mm. podcast, but um, equally when it comes to powerful memoirs, they're really important. And for those of us who haven't experienced those things. So I think, mm -hmm. yeah, thank you so much for talking to us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been really fun. Yeah. Uh, 
Ravanka again for talking to us. Um, I think it's definitely one of the most inter- one of our more interesting interviews for us to conduct, at least because it's not just about somebody what somebody writing a story; it's actually somebody writing a story about their own lives. So mm. you're you're talking to the character in the book rather than um, talking about them. So yeah, and I, I definitely thought there was a lot a lot of great insights, and I hope it kind of shows you if you haven't read it yet um, what kind of you're in for but also what kind of Gavandra has to say and what her story was um but yeah oh gosh it was quite yeah I actually I reading the book I actually remember texting Francesca basically just saying this book is so incredibly moving and I think that's mm. really the biggest thing I would start off saying about it don't you think oh I, yeah I completely agree and I think you know obviously even the the title the consequences of love is is very moving and um links back to this sort of idea in the book about how the consequence of loving someone is that you might one day have to grieve them and I think that that as a as a sentiment is obviously very powerful and poignant and that drives the book forward um and it is just a a very powerful read but it is also I think an optimistic and, and hopeful read would you agree um I know that uh when it first arrived on on my doorstep I thought, oh, this this looks like an amazing book, but I wonder if I'm going to struggle to read this, particularly at the moment when we've got the pandemic and, and emotions are fraught. Um, but actually, I, it's, it's so engaging and her story is so moving. And she does write with this, this sort of optimism and, and hopefulness that I didn't find that. I didn't find it... I mean, obviously, it's very tragic and that, and that was something that I took away from it. But I think... Um, if you're worried about reading it because you think that you might not be able to cope, I, I don't think that is the case. I think that it's it's got that that balance, um, absolutely right, while still being very true to to the events that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, you know, Gavandra's background as as a journalist kind of comes into its shows its strengths here, and that she she writes, I think, very approachably and very kind of inclusively. Um, it's not. Uh, you know I think sometimes yes these memoirs can be very harrowing but it definitely it definitely isn't and she doesn't she doesn't shy away at all from the detail the gory details I suppose you know there is actual you know she describes her memory of the moment that she saw her sister kind of close to death you know and describes her running across the running back and forward across the room Um, and I think certainly she doesn't shy away from the real details which I think makes it very accessible because you know, you you feel like she's actually opening up to you. She's not kind of fudging things. But equally, I think her writing is, yeah, I agree, very... She writes about it in a sort of, like, perhaps maybe resigned kind of way, I suppose. Like, it's honest, but it's not tragic and it's not sort of overly complex either. I think she writes about these things that happened to her, about being the child of an addict, about how sad, difficult it is. But perhaps it's because there's no not much self-pity either you know Gavandra's not asking you to pity her she's not asking you to sort of feel bad for her she's asking you just to like hear her story because it's something which she wants to tell so yeah I think that's and I think also Gavandra has had a a very interesting life herself you know child she's the child of addicts you know she was part of a big Chelsea party scene um you know articles that write about the book and her have pointed this out already um and she's had a very interesting career as well and you know her journey from being you know a child who lost her sister and whose parents kind of really struggled to deal with it to uh, a a woman with a family who is writing a book to deal with her grief I think it's quite inspiring definitely um I think Mm. it's really interesting you pointed this out after we interviewed her Francesca that she said that in the beginning she didn't intend to really write about her life now um, you know, as a mother and as the person who decided to try and find her sister through various, sometimes amusing means. Um, but then her editor said to her, well, you should include, you know, you need to include who you are. You need to show them who you are now. And I suppose you would think, well, that's the obvious point of a memoir. You go from the beginning of your life to the end. But interestingly, Gavandra kind of said, yeah, I wasn't really so up for talking about myself. I don't really like bigging myself up. But then she realised that it was important for her to do that. And I think maybe that's something you realise you start to take for granted when you read people's memoirs about how difficult or weird it can be for somebody to put themselves and their present self in the book as well as their past. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and we were saying that that, that uh, those two timelines for us as readers were very integral because you have the trauma uh, that happens at the very beginning of um, and reverberates throughout Cavandra's life. 
but you also have a feeling of recovery and a feeling of stability um, in her present day life. But also that is still underlined by the fact that she has been impacted by the events that happened. And in that present day storyline, she's trying to piece together what happened um, to her sister and what happened to her and, and how they intersect and how it has had this lasting impact on her life. And I think that that I really felt that both those two strands of the story were very complementary to one another. And sometimes as well for a reader, I think sometimes when the you know, the scenes with her at school when her, her school friends are not really able to understand what she's going through and just kind of brush it under the carpet and don't really talk to her about her grief. The fact that they were juxtaposed with scenes where you see her in her her London living room with her loving family in the present day, that did kind of ground you in a, a slight sense of optimism of like, you know, she's going to be okay, which I think uh, for me helped when I was reading it. Um, and also helps you feel closer to her as well, because I think that's one aspect of a memoir that is always, I always notice whenever I've read a book, which is somebody writing about their life, is that you do almost end the, the story feeling like you know them and feeling like they're your friend. And particularly the way that Gavandra writes, she writes as if she is telling you all of this over coffee. Um, or And as you say, that it, that has that immediacy, which is um, really effective. And uh, I think that's something that, yeah, really struck me. Mm-hmm. And I think certainly, um, you know, she kind of, to talk a bit about as well about how the lockdown you know is a very strange time and you know it's a time where people you know things are happening to people that they're going to have to grieve unfortunately and I think Mm. that's a really uh, important point to take away from the book as well that um, you know we asked her about how what how as a society we can start to be better about grief and she's certainly correct I think when it comes to you know in the, when it comes to saying that in the in the modern day you know with science and reason and our ever-extending lives um, people don't like to think about the possibility of death and yet it is kind of everywhere um, particularly now and I think kind of what she has to say in the book about the importance of tackling her grief and also how she found that in some many cases, her talking candidly to people who asked about what actually happened to her sister, you know, frankly saying to them, I watched my sister die, doesn't actually, she doesn't find herself met with sort of like confused, creeped out faces. She gets met with people being like, yes, I understand. Here is a personal story that, you know, we're not like, trying to rank everybody, are we? It's more, most people have something to add to these discussions and it helps them. I mean, I know, um, I know people who've had, you know, I've got friends whose little sisters died very young and, and, you know, various examples like that. And and again, I remember at the time hearing about it being quite shocked, but actually it's like this kind of stuff is kind of everywhere and lots of people have these stories and more will now, unfortunately, given what's going on. So I think Gavandra's message of tackling that grief and talking about it and being open about it and not being ashamed to have had it happen to you I think is also really, really important. And I think, yeah, the fact that we yeah. can say her book is hopeful and optimistic and readable and not totally miserable, I think shows you that grief is not this horrible thing that you can't talk about and you have to bury and you have to just ignore, you know? And I really thought there was a really poignant moment where she writes about how they put Candy's ashes in a box and they put her her belongings in a box and then she says they locked you away candy and i remember reading at the time thinking but they didn't they just put her in a box but actually meaningfully it's not just storage it's you shut those memories away and then people Mm. around you don't ask you to bring them up again and then you start internalizing it so i think that's certainly something that i mean i want to voice about the book as well that i think it's got a really important message about how we grieve and Mm. you know we shouldn't go ham Victorians who are obsessed with grieving and death but we shouldn't do what we do in the present day either or pretend it doesn't exist yeah and I think the fact that in the in the book Gavandra is trying to write her way back to Candy she's also trying to construct a place for Candy in her present day life and that does um happen I don't think it's a spoiler for us to say that that you know she gets to a point where she's talking about her sister to her daughters and her daughters um one of them does a a drawing at school and, and says it's candy and I thought that was so sweet and so moving and also when you have lost somebody it's so there comes a point where it's so pleasant to be able to discuss them and to discuss things they would have liked and things that they would have enjoyed in your present day-to-day life because it does keep them alive and it keeps their spirit alive and I think that 
is something that um the book celebrates and and as you say i think that's something that is good for us to be reminded of as a society because it is definitely the case that obviously sometimes somebody might tell you something that is just truly awful and and you don't quite know how to respond but i think when she watched said to us in the interview that just being there for people is really the most important thing um and obviously right now as you say that is made more difficult by the fact that we're all sort of separated and isolated from one another but there's still ways of connecting and sometimes those just small gestures can mean so much can't they yeah absolutely i think so yeah so this is definitely and certainly a really powerful memoir which is out now it's important to you know say that everybody has their story and everybody's story is kind of worth hearing and worth telling so i'm also looking forward personally to getting into a few more memoirs after this because it's definitely it's definitely like ignited my interest actually i realized biographies i'm a bit like yeah whatever but memoirs i think are super important and i yeah i'm really excited actually to get into some more um now that i've read commanders um, it's a, a really interesting genre and uh, you mentioned obviously the book is out now it's also out in audiobook um and Gavandra reads the audiobook so i imagine that would be a really powerful and interesting listen so that would be an alternative to uh to buying the hardback which of course is very beautiful and you should buy but yeah <laughs> maybe have both <laughs> yeah just go for both um i'm honestly in danger of creating a I mean, I've been looking at my books recently and I keep bringing in more and I'm one of those hard, one of those paperback purists. But um, I'm starting to think in my lockdown madness, maybe I'll establish a huge book collection and I'll display it. And then people will take pictures of it and tell me how amazing I am for collecting loads of books. And it's just it's going it's going in a dark place. But, you know, (laughs) I know, to be honest with you, there is no reason to not buy more books. I can't think of one. I don't want to think of one, so. Well, I think that's a good place to uh, end end this section of the podcast. Right, so uh, here we are, back with, uh, it turns out, books of the bi-month slash fortnight. In light of the kind of current events, um, we thought that we would have a chat about some books that we have enjoyed over the past months um, and year, really, um, that have been uh, written by black authors and are kind of about the black experience in the US and the UK, just because we think it's important to kind of highlight their writing, especially at a time like now, because it's important for all of us to read about the diversity of the human experience and books are a really powerful way to do that. Absolutely. Um, I think, yeah, you know, we have a platform with Love Labour's Watched. It is obviously a small one, but it's a platform nonetheless. And it's important to us to highlight books that present experiences beyond our own experiences, white British women. So, um, yeah, these are, these are some books that we've read recently that we think you would also love. Helena, do you want to kick us off with um, the book that you wanted to bring to the forefront, first of all? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, So actually, I have very recently, as in in the last few days, picked up um, Rennie Edo Lodge's um, Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. This is a book that really made a big impact in Britain, at least um, in 2017. Um, Basically, she wrote it off the back of a 2014 blog post where she discussed how tired she was with having to constantly explain racial history and current racial issues in Britain to various white people. And she says that, you know, the big crux of no longer talking to white people is really a reference, not a reference to the fact that she doesn't want to talk to white people, but a reference to the fact that many white people in the UK Um, are quite ignorant of our own racial history, um, which is bound up in slavery and and colonialism and stretches Mm. kind of around the world and includes more than black people, um, to be honest with you. But she specifically is a black woman. So she's thinking about the black experience in the UK. Um, Rennie Edelodge is a journalist and an author. So this is kind of where she's coming from. And she describes in the book how she spent her years from university onwards, realising that she didn't know anything about the black experience in the UK and you know, why the UK is not just a wholly white country. Um, And she says, actually, she expresses how it was quite difficult for her to learn this history because it wasn't really there. And, um, you know, it's not really very current or clear or obvious in the British psyche or in British teaching or kind of conversations about race. So, yeah, it was a really powerful book. 
that title, you know, why I'm no longer talking to white people, you know, it wants you to think, it wants you to get, it wants to bring that feeling up in you as a white person, I think, that you're like, what's wrong with me? What did I do wrong? I'm not a racist. I, I didn't own slaves. Why? Why do? What? You know, why are you giving up on me? Why won't you educate me as a white person? And I think that's Renny Edelodge's point. Really, it is mm. that it's not a black person's responsibility. She believes, and I, I agree with her, to educate a white person as to why racism is systemic and endemic in our society, um, and why it is that black people face black people and people of color generally face obstacles that white people don't face every day. So that's the point of her book, and it's um it's obviously become more popular. Well, she's expressed how she's seen a an uptick in sales again in the last few weeks because of the Black Lives Matter movement kind of and the the murders, including of George Floyd in the US um, and Belly Majinga, the train, um, the, 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 the train, the National Rail employee. Yeah, mm. who was killed um, in Victoria Station as well um, this this month. So or last month. So, yeah, it's um, I think it's it's really accessible, I think. And um, I think it's a really important book to read. Because she lays out kind of straight what the UK black experience is and how it, you know, I would, it's probably, <laughs> there, there's not less problems in the US, there are just different problems in the, than in the US and the UK. And I think for the UK person, it's really important to read her book because I also think that like, actually, as I'm, you know, both you and I are both privileged in that sense and that we went to a university where we both had access to the kinds of education that taught us about systemic racism in the UK, mm. you know? I mean, I was doing colonial history in school from about 16 or 17, um, and I learned about the British role in India and how bad it was. I was never taught that it was good. So I think, but it is definitely true from my experience teaching history myself in lower levels of schooling, it's actually not very accessible. You know, you don't really learn in school about the racial aspects of colonial history beyond just perhaps one sentence in the lesson and I think it's I think it's more unlikely more likely than it is not that other people will not have the same kinds of vision that we do because of the education that we've had so I think also spotlighting her book's important because it's clear to me that not many people have the same view of history that I think we have and I'm also planning to you know shove it around into my family as faces and try and get them to read it just so I know that like they have heard what the book has to say so yeah it's a really important mm. book, I think. Um, and Rennie's also said she doesn't want people buying it because it benefits her. She wants people to borrow it or lend it or donate the cost of the book to a, a charity and that supports the Black Lives Matter movement. So, yeah, it's really worth reading. I completely agree. It's a very powerful read. And I think for me, one, one of the parts that uh, struck me most was the beginning of where um, Rennie presents a history of race relations in Britain um, from leading up to the present day. And, you know, it, it is very eye-opening in terms of highlighting incidences and events that go uncovered in the school curriculum, or at least did when I was at school. Um, and I wanted to highlight a novel um, that you and I have both read, which also touches on um, elements of British history that are often just not discussed. Andrea Levy's 2004 novel, Small Island, which is a novel that highlights the experience of the Windrush generation, um, the thousands of people who moved from the Caribbean to Britain in the aftermath of the Second World War. And the novel shines a light on Britain's complicated, to say the least, relationship with race. It, it largely does that through the story of this couple, Gilbert and Hortense, who are newlyweds who come to live as lodgers in the home of the white middle-class Queenie. And the book is about... Um, the relationships between all these different characters who um, who are thrown together by this circumstance. Um, and it's also about Hortense in particular, her expectations of Britain and how, and then what is she's actually greeted with. Um, both she and Gilbert, who fought for Britain in the Second World War, for the Commonwealth, both of them expect um, to be welcomed with open arms and expect something special and exciting and that's not what they get instead they get outright racism discrimination and it's 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 just incredibly eye-opening and powerful you know it, it's not that long ago this history but um the 
the, the stuff that they face is, is just very upsetting to read. Um, and the book is also about the sort of conflicts and subtleties of the relationships. Um, and it also explores the perspective of Queenie's husband. He's incredibly antagonistic um, and discriminatory. But by exploring all these different perspectives, I think Andrea Levy really highlights um, the feeling of that time and, um, yeah, the conflicts and subtleties. Um, it's incredibly powerful, uh, like a really unforgettable read. And I think it also really takes you into the, the world of that post-war Britain, which was economically troubled and it certainly wasn't just a, a celebratory time despite the fact the war was over. Uh, I also really recommend the National Theatre's 2019 adaptation of this book um, and it's actually due to return to the theatre this fall obviously pending COVID-19 restrictions um, but it was an incredible um, production. There was a, a moment um, there was a moment where uh, you see Hortense um, board the boat to Britain and the way that the um, the stage show portrayed this, which I should just add, is like a little bit of a spoiler. If you are planning to see the show and you don't want to hear about this, just skip over like five seconds. But because it was very powerful, but it um, had her step into a screen which um, depicted the boat leaving, uh, leaving the harbour and it used real footage. Um, and it was it was incredible. So, um, yeah, I really recommend that book. And I think it uh, I found it to be very fascinating and incredibly interesting and well-written. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, the Windrush um, the Windrush crisis, or no, sorry, the Windrush scandal, I perhaps, what we can call mm. it, that occurred, um, was two years ago now? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, um, Renny Edelodge goes into that a little bit as well. So it's all, you know, all these experiences, historic and current, are all interconnected. You know, the Windrush generation who came over here in 1948 onwards and, you know, then increasingly had their, and then, then increasingly as the British government sort of slimmed down their immigration rights, started to be sort of subject to attacks. And then obviously in more recent years have had their right to remain or their status as British citizens called into question. It's all, it, it's all ongoing, I think. Um, and I think these kinds Absolutely, of books yeah. definitely show that to you. I think it highlights how, you know, it can be so easy for us to just um, put the past in the past and be like, that's just not really relevant anymore. And I think books like, um, like Andrea Levy's and, of course, like Rennie Edo Lodge's, highlight how actually the past is completely interconnected to the present and we can't just choose to separate ourselves from that because it's convenient and because it makes us feel less guilty or um, whatever it might be. So, yeah, it's um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, cool. And um, absolutely. And just to also, my second book that I want to highlight is one that talks, talks about sort of the... Um, the the American experience. So the novel I want to talk about to kind of be my second book of the by month um, is An American, An American Marriage um, by Tayari Jones. She won the 2019 prize for women's fiction, or women's prize in the UK for it. So it was hugely popular here. Most people yeah. that we know read it. We both read it. Um, and basically, um, you know, American Marriage deals with an American marriage. It, you know, it, it deals with... Um, the characters are called Celestial and Roy, and they're two black people from Atlanta who get married. And as newlyweds, they basically um, go through this traumatic event where basically they're in a hotel together. They have an argument over their future because they have some questions about whether or not they're going to have children immediately or not. Celestial's unsure. Roy really wants them. And then he goes outside to call off and then he meets this woman with a broken arm and he goes to help her because she looks in distress and then in the middle of the night while celestials with him asleep the police barge into the room arrest Roy for rape because it turns out this woman who was hurt was raped and she believes that it was Roy who did it so it's a very typical and quite I think hard-hitting example of what black people in the US have to go through especially black men every day being falsely accused of violence just because of what they look like and um, obviously there have been examples of that happening even in the last few weeks so that's a really important thing that happens in the novel that really changes the lives of Roy and Celestial and basically Roy goes to prison for 12 years there's no recourse for him and Celestial tries to kind of not move on with her life but she tries to sort of live whilst Roy's in prison and increasing their marriage starts to break apart and Celestial falls in love with her best friend and then Roy, when he comes out of prison, 
you know, they try and have, they have to come back together and they have to kind of confront what happened to them. So there's a lot in the book about just, you know, marriage, but there's also a lot in the book about the impact of mass incarceration and its social impact on black families. Um, and there's a lot of discussion amongst the families of Roy and of Celestial about what the impact of this is um, and about why it's happening to them. And they're both, you know, um, and it's it's very sad, I think, in lots of ways, but also it's an important book to read and there's a reason that it won um, prizes. So um, I don't want to go too much more into it than that. I don't want to mm. sort of spoil it. But I, I do think that um, in the age that we're in now, the kind of topics that Tiari Jones deals with in An American Marriage are really, really timely. Um, and yeah. equally, there are some books on mass incarceration that we could recommend, I could recommend as well that I've read, which really teach you about how the mass incarceration of black men in the US is kind of a uh, it's a it's a what's the word it's a it's an heir to the Jim Crow laws which kept black families in their place which is an heir itself to slavery which kept black people Mm. under the you know under the thumbs of white slave owners so yeah it's an important book to read and I think and a good a good introduction to what mass incarceration kind of looks like for black men in the US as well yeah it's, it's it's as you say it's an incredibly powerful read because you see the lives of Celestial and Roy before this event which you know they're they've got their whole lives ahead of them they've got their whole marriage ahead of them they're both full of promise with their careers um, and then you see how that's just completely torn apart by this one one event of this uh, that they had absolutely no control over and they were completely in the wrong place at the wrong time and it, it's heartbreaking um, and is just a really amazing book and I think again you you find yourself you're incredibly empathetic to Celestial's perspective and Roy's perspective um, and the other characters who end up being intertwined in their lives um it's also just an incredibly romantic book and um yeah I, I highly recommend it as well mm-hmm. yeah and to finish us off what's your second book of the by month Francesca yeah, so my second book is one that I actually read recently um, during lockdown um, called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid, which um, is on paper a slightly more lighthearted book than some of the ones we talked about. Um, it's very witty and wry, um, but it also takes a deep, inquisitive look at contemporary America by the lens of two women. Um, recent college graduate Amira, who is black and works as a babysitter for a wealthy white family who's he- which is helmed by this sort of influencer type woman called Alix. Um, one night Amira is babysitting Alix's two-year-old daughter and she's stopped by security at a local grocery store and accused of kidnapping the child because they don't believe that she's the babysitter. Um, and the book is about the aftermath of this obviously horrendous and incredibly traumatic event um, but Alix um, basically strives to try and prove herself and prove herself as beyond the evident racism and discrimination that was displayed by the security guard but in doing so she often highlights her own glaring blind spots. Meanwhile Amira is just trying to figure out what she wants from life like many other college graduates and wants to very much forget this incident ever happened which she's kind of not able to do um obviously because it was traumatic it was also videoed um and also because everyone else is always reminding her of it including her boss so it's very much um it's very much just a look into the these two women's psyches and how they interact and um Again, it's kind of about the sort of subtleties of those interactions and the microaggressions that are often at the heart of how Elise is behaving to Amira. So it's a, a really interesting read. Um, it's very funny in parts as well, um, but it's principally it is eye opening and it, it does, it, you know, when that scene. It's not a spoiler to say um, what happens at the beginning. The situation where um, Amira is accused of kidnapping because it does happen at the beginning of the novel, um, but during that that chapter you have your heart in your chest because you just know how this scene could play out um and have much worse consequences than it actually does um which is just awful um but we would really love to hear from any listeners who would um who have any books along these lines that you might want us to read or take a look at or discuss um 
we're always looking for new books and we're always looking to be educated as well. Uh, and equally, I would in- encourage um, anybody listening who um, anybody listening to go out and to read about what's going on at the minute um, with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and picking up a book or reading about it is, is, is a step towards helping to support um, the movement. And there are so many books out there that we could talk about that we haven't talked about that really help to encapsulate the experiences of black people which have led to where we are today. So um yeah that's that, that's our books of the bye month any of our listeners if you're interested in the stuff we've talked about today please go and please go and you know give it a go um equally if you want to share your thoughts with us on the episode on the stuff we've talked about on stuff we didn't talk about please do get in touch with us um we have our twitter real llw our instagram which is loves labors watched um, and our email, which is loveslaborswatch at gmail.com. We share little episode clips online um, on those places as well. So if you want to hear a little snippet of what the episode's about this week, you can hear it there. We also chat about what we're going to do next, when the next episode's going to be out. So it's great to follow us there. And equally, we do have some new bonus content up for you on our Patreon as ever. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com slash loveslaborswatched. Um, if you become a £5 tier member, no, sorry, $5 tier member or a $10 tier member, you get access to bonus content, extra chats with us. Um, we have talked to members of our book club about various things. Um, we've had extra chats with special guests. We post full, um, you know, full pieces of content that, you know, things that we necessarily didn't make into the final cut of our normal episode. So if you're really interested in hearing more from us then and to support the show as well, please go and support us there. Um, I always say the main podcast will remain free. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts, sure. But the Patreon is really a place where we post extra stuff for those people who are fans of the show and want to hear more. So if you're interested, please do sign up to be a Patreon and support the show. Until next time in a fortnight. <laughs> Fortnite's <laughs> the theme of this show now. Um, stay safe, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.